Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in Philippians. Good morning again. We're in Philippians and uh, Paul writes this letter to this church in Philippi. And uh, we've looked at the fact that Paul is greatly encouraged by what they're doing in Philippi, greatly encouraged that they've received the message and he's like, they get it, they get it. And he who started a good work in them, who started something is going to finish it and complete it. And today we come to this passage, Philippians 2. And uh, it might be familiar words to you, might not be. Um, but in the Bible, they're incredibly significant words. We've got this bit in the centre of this letter, Paul writes this church. We have this poem, uh, this kind of, we think an early Christian hymn, like a piece of uh, liturgy or something that they would have known, they would have said together in their gatherings, they would have gathered like this and they would have said this poem or this song, might have even sung it. And Paul is using it to make a particular point and it's this incredible passage it's got like in the original Greek it's got like rhythm and sort of cadence it's got a flow to it it moves it's poetic it's um it's deeply captivating and uh it's a big big passage and as I come to speak to you this morning I must confess I come with trepidation because this passage is not only a favorite passage of mine but also has this sense of of awe of um where it stands in the scriptures its significance to the scriptures to the story of salvation is grand. It's this story of the God who loved. The God who, though he was in very form God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, something to be taken advantage of, but made himself nothing. And so we get in the poem this movement of kind of descent. God from heaven becomes born. And guess what? We're still in Christmas. And this is a deeply Christmas passage. And this was, in fact, the passage which kind of inspired our Christmas services, this idea that God who was God above would become man, born as a little baby boy. So there's this descent in the passage and then there's this ascent. He who humbled himself became born as a baby boy. 
was lifted up, exalted, set high above the heavens, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and will be for all eternity. That's the poem, that's the song that we're getting into. And so there's this weight to it. Um, there's something here that, that in some sense summarizes the whole story of the scriptures. And at its heart is this, this incarnation, incarnation, this word carne, flesh. God has flesh. Who is God? God has flesh. He's got skin in the game. God has got skin in the game, born amongst us. It's the story of the scriptures. And in one sense, what Paul is doing is setting it right at the heart of the letter to fix the Philippians' eyes on this truth, that God who is high became low for us. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for myself. And you might want to pray for me as well. The idea of trying to open this passage, um, to do more than this passage itself has, Um, is perhaps a scary prospect. But today we're going to look at it, see what God has to say to us through these words. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we gather as your people and uh, we gather around your word. And so we pray that today, Lord God, you would speak to us. Just as these words would have spoken to the Philippian church all those years ago, we pray that today you would captivate us through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. If, Paul says, you have any love, any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. If you have any of these things, if you have tasted goodness, church, if you have enjoyed comfort and compassion, if you have began gathering with us and worshipping with us regularly and you have felt a sense of God's presence, if you have felt the love of another, if you have made a friend here or friends, if you have felt valued and supported, if there is a sense in which God has been at work in you, Paul says, if, then make my joy complete. Finish the story. Finish the race. There is a destination, a goal to what God is doing. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. And what is the goal? What is the destination for the church? Where is the church to go? And for Paul, where the church is to go is to this idea of being like-minded, united in love, of one spirit, to be unified, Each of you, he says, looking not only for their own interests, but the interests of others. There is a destination, a journey that the church is to go on. And the goal of that journey is that they might become, he thinks, a body, a community, a people who love well. Who love costly, in costly ways. And I have a word for you. It's two words for you today, church. And uh, they came to me this morning as I was um, getting ready for the service. And the two words are these, bin juice, bin juice, right? And they came to me because Mari, where's Mari? Is Mari here? Was cleaning up outside. There was a load of sort of bags of rubbish in the foyer. And um, she was cleaning up outside. And as happens when you pick up a bin liner sometimes, right? It seems to happen to me all the time. But you pick up a bin liner, and what's left on the floor is a kind of a residue 
bin juice was the word Mari used. And there was Mari at 9.45 cleaning this bin juice off the floor. And the word that came to me was, yes, this is what Paul is talking about. This is what love looks like for Paul, that we would lay down our life. We would give up our rights, he says. We would give up something of ourselves in order to love the other. And Paul has in mind a community which is so full of love for the other that they are prepared to give up their own personal desires, their own personal needs in order to love one another. That's what he has in mind, a costly love, a sort of bin juice type of love, a cleaning up rubbish type of love, a talking to that person who has bad breath sort of love, a talking to that person who no one else would go near sort of love, a willingness to give up money, to give up time, to give up energy in order to love that one. That's what Paul has in mind. And it's interesting to me that for Paul, the goal of this, the goal of this church, he says, what would make my joy complete is not, well, it's not lots of things, it's not church growth. It's important we see that. Paul doesn't say, make my joy complete by growing to be a big church. He doesn't say, make my joy complete by growing in knowledge or make my joy complete by growing in wisdom. He doesn't say, make my joy complete by growing in the development of spiritual gifts. Make my joy complete by growing in prophecy and tongues. He doesn't say that. And that's not to say those things are insignificant for Paul. Clearly they're not. All the way through the the letters he writes, we see how significant those things are. It is simply to say that for Paul... The end goal in this point for the Philippian church, where does maturity lie? Maturity lies in them being able to be a people, a community that love like that, that love sacrificially. And where does he jump to? Where does he jump to in order to show them what that love looks like? Well, he jumps to the story of salvation itself. The story of salvation itself. We're going to watch a video Um, This is a video from Google, and um, every year uh, Google produce a video which kind of sums up or captures something of the year in Google searches. They look at the data, what people have searched for over the year, and then they produce a video to sum it up. How to move forward, the video ends. How to move forward. And uh, what interested me when I watched that video, I don't know if you've watched them in previous years, but... In previous years, the videos tend to be quite uplifting. I remember watching one when I was a form tutor of a class at a school. And uh, my head teacher just emailed me and said, you should show this video. For, it will kill some, some of the time in form time. <laughs> and um, I was like, who do you think I am, head teacher? That's not me. And, um, but I showed this video. So I hadn't seen it. I showed the Google video and I stood at the back of the classroom. And on, this is an exaggeration. I'm in like floods of tears watching this thing. And the kids are looking at me like, you know, what's going on? But in previous years, the videos have been deeply moving, deeply sort of uh, beautiful moments on the internet. But this one, I don't know if you noticed, it just had this air of sort of this somber tone to it, underlying, it's been a rough year, hasn't it? When you look at the the news, and on a global sense, it's been a tough year. The United Nations, amongst the Facebook reports of the year and the Google reports of the year and the Instagram reports of the year, amongst Cristiano Ronaldo and Selena Gomez, UN published their report of the year, and they said that this year there have been more people in need of support, financial, medical, um, physical support, than ever before. More refugees, more homeless than ever before. Uh, We've seen crises across the globe, just an air of sort of instability. This has been the year when Donald Trump has had his chance to make his mark on the world, where Brexit has come in, and whatever end of those political spectrums you stand, we can't 
help but see the kind of uneasiness, the unsteadiness of our world. And so the video ends with this haunting question, how to move forward? Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here as a new year starts? And what I want to suggest is that we as a church have our part to play in answering that question. Where do we go from here? What does it look like for us to answer that question? And what I want to say is, what it looks like for us, church, to answer that question is to be the community which believes in the God who gives himself up for the world and who practices it as the people. What does it look like for us to move forward? It looks like for us to more deeply embrace this story of the God of love who would give himself up for the world and to model it in our relationships with one another. That's what we have to offer. That's our part to play. That's what God is calling us to. And it might be that some of us here play our part in answering those great questions that the world is asking right now and in dealing with the refugee crisis and in dealing with some of those political issues. Yes, God is calling each of us to think about where we play our part in that. But what he's calling us to as a people, what he calls the church to time and time again, as Johnny put it quite early on in our story, he said, the only church that matters, or sorry, the only um, hermeneutic that matters, the only interpretation of the scriptures, the only interpretation of the story that matters is a community that really believes it. That's what matters. That's what we are called to do. Yes, we're called to play our part, but ultimately we're called to be that people that loves like God loves. And so Paul calls them to focus again on the story. And this poem, this, this, this part of the scriptures with this rhythm and cadence is really, really significant because it's one of the parts of scripture that shows us what God is like in a very sort of intimate way. And particularly what it does is it shows us that Jesus Christ is the one who reveals God. Um, he who was in the form of God, he who was God before creation, before any of you were here, before I was here, before any of us were here, he existed as God. And so when he is born, he reveals what God is truly like. And so N.T. Wright says that what this passage is really doing is not showing us so much who Jesus is, though it is doing that. It's ultimately showing us who God is. What is God like? What is God like? He is like this. Let me tell you, Paul says, this is what God looks like. He who was on a throne became a baby boy. He who was on a throne became a baby boy. There's a story about um, some Jewish prisoners of war um, during the Holocaust, and uh, they were walking through um, some fields, and as they came to the end of this field, there was um, some gallows had been set up by the German soldiers. And uh, on the gallows, they were about to hang a Jewish family, um, including some young uh, children. And these Jewish prisoners of war kind of marched and were made to look at this horrific, horrific sight. And uh, as the family were being put, put on the gallows, one of the Jewish prisoners turned to one of the others and said, um, and just said sort of to nobody in particular, where is God? Where is God? And uh, one of these Jewish prisoners um, cried out sort of in answer to this rhetorical question and pointed at the gallows and says, there he is there, hanging on the gallows. Where is God? There he is there, hanging on the gallows. Who is God, we might ask? And what Paul is saying is God is that baby in the crib on that cold night. God is that man who loved unconditionally. God is that one he 
eventually gets to the point, who even humbled himself to death and even death on a cross. Where is God? There he is. If we want to know what God is like, Paul is saying, look to Jesus Christ. He is the model that we follow. He is the one that we are to base our loves upon. And so it's a radically different conception of God. It's like, um, I don't know if any of you have been watching the Blue Planet um, this year, but that's been one of the highlights of the year, I guess, and on TV. And What really interests me when you watch that is, I don't know if you are fascinated by the idea of a current, and um, that the sea can be going in one direction, moving in one way. But then under the surface of the sea, you get this undercurrent, this kind of pullback, and it's like, You've got to be really careful when you see these little fish floundering because they're being pulled by this current. And it seems to be going in completely the opposite direction. There's this current and then there's an undercurrent. And I think what Paul is doing in this um, passage is giving us a conception of God which is like that undercurrent. That is so counter to anything we might think God is like or should be like. So counter to anything we think that power should be like or love should be like in the world. It's like an undercurrent. We're like in the sphere of a different reality, a whole different way of conceiving what it is to be human, to love well. Very, very different. And Paul is is getting the Philippians to to say, that is maturity. That is the direction I want you to go, to increasingly follow that current, to get into that slipstream. You know, it's very, very easy to go with the way that the world does power, the way that the world does love. And what Paul is calling them to increasingly is get in that slipstream. Get caught up in that story, that reality. That's who God is. If you're playing the power game still, if you have this conception of the kings and the gods who lord it over their people and who rule by power and by might, you're going to not understand the God that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. Get in that slipstream. Get in that reality. And so when Paul says in verse 5, before he gets onto the poem. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The language there is a little bit confusing. Really what the language is saying is, have the mindset that is fitting of people in Jesus Christ. Have the mindset that fits that story. You are the people of Christ Jesus. You worship him, you, you hold him up high, you put the crown upon his head, you say you are for him. And so Paul is saying, if you claim to be that people, then have the mindset that was in him. Have the mindset that he was true to. Live in the reality that he was in. Live in the slipstream that he was in. And what does that slipstream look like? And then he unpacks it in this poem. He was who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. So we're called to get in the slipstream, into that new reality. I've just got a couple of thoughts about what that slipstream might look like and then finally how we get increasingly in there so jack can i jump forward a couple of slides next one amazing so i just got two thoughts one is about the smallness and the next one is about this word har pagmon har pagmon so smallness first there's something here what does this strip slipstream look like what does this undercurrent look like well it looks like to love small. I don't know if you um, picked this up, but it came to me through the passage, this idea that God who was above would become a baby boy. There's something about the smallness of this story. And Johnny talks about this through our carol services and uh, our other services over Christmas. He said, you know, Christmas is not about being bigger and better. Christmas is about being smaller 
and weaker. That's the God that we worship, right? The God who was born not as a king in a palace, but as a baby boy in a stable. There's something about the smallness of this. Jesus would regularly pull his way through the crowds to speak to the one, right? He's, he's walking through a crowd, and rather than being so concerned to address the crowd, he turns and he asks people's names. Daughter, he says. A woman reaches out desperately to clutch him and he stops everything. He turns to her, looks her in the eye and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. That's how Jesus loves. Loves the one. Loves the small. Johnny talked about, you know, the strategy of Jesus. The strategy of Christmas was not the most successful media strategy we could think of. Jesus has 12 friends. He goes deep with 12 friends. It's small. He loves in the small ways. And he particularly loves those who are isolated, who are broken, the one. He looks for the one. How do we love small? Sometimes in church, you know, we can get drawn into this way of thinking about um, meta plans and big pictures thinking and broad vision and all of that is great. But I feel like what Paul is asking the Philippians to, what he's saying maturity looks like is can you love the one? There's a Christian speaker who likes to say, you know, the most important person in the room is the person sat next to you. What a discipline. What if we could look like that as a community? That rather than having one of those conversations where you're kind of talking, but you're kind of like not really, you're kind of looking for the, the most important person in the room to speak to over coffee or whatever. What if we could have the type of relationship where we focus on the one? When Vicky was an intern once, she went to listen to this really well-known Christian speaker. And she came back to me and I, I sort of asked that, how did it go? And I was really interested to know what he said. And Vicky said, I didn't really listen to much of it. Um, it wasn't all that interesting. Um, but, she said, I didn't really mind because I got a little nugget from it. And she said the little nugget she got from it was this guy, who's a big Christian speaker, really confident, popular guy, goes around the world speaking, written a lot of books. Um, he, said, he said, you know, one of the disciplines I've tried to put in my life is I've tried to ask more questions than I've talked. I've tried to ask more questions than I've talked. What if we could be the type of church... That when people come in here, rather than just talking at them, we ask questions. What if we could be the type of human being, the type of person who asks more questions? It's a small thing. It's a small thing. But that, I think, is how God loves in the small things. Can we do the small things well? Mother Teresa said, you know, not everybody's going to do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. We can all do small things with great love. This is the woman whose shoes were torn up, her feet were torn up and marred and broken because she refused to wear the best shoes. She would give the best shoes in the orphanage or the home out to others. This is how she loved. We can all do small things with great love. So love in the small. The second thing is this word harpagmon. Can everybody say harpagmon? And this is this word um, in verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. And the word there, he used to his own advantage, in some translations it says grasped. He did not grasp equality with God. He did not sort of cling on to it. He did not grab hold of it. He did not seek to use it to further his own ends. And one of the ways in which we love in this slipstream, one of the ways it looks to love in this way, is to love without recourse to our own rights to our own desires, to our own needs, to refuse to hold on. And there's two ways of living our life. We can either live with a closed hand or we can live with an open hand. And if we live with a closed hand, it's about keeping 
sure of our own interests, keeping on top of our own rights, what we need, what we desire, what's going to get us through life. That's one way of loving. But there's another way of loving, which is to live with an open hand. Now, if you live with an open hand, it's to let go of your rights, to let go of what you need, to let go of what you want, to love with an open hand. And the problem with living life with a closed hand, it might feel like things are more secure, but the problem with living life with an open hand, with a closed hand, is that you can't possibly receive any more. But to live life with an open hand, to refuse to grasp, to cling on, is to be able to receive more. And there's this sort of paradox in this poem that he who was lowered is lifted up. And the way to be lifted up, the way to find life is to humble oneself. That's the paradox at the heart of this poem. As we go low, we find ourselves lifted up because as we let go of our rights, as we let go of what it is that we feel we want, we find ourselves being able to receive more and more from him, Harpagnon. The refusal to cling on to our rights. If we cling on to our rights, forgiveness becomes impossible because if somebody wrongs us, if somebody hurts us, we have a position, we're in a position of power. We have a position of right. They have hurt my rights. They have impinged upon my rights. And if we cling on to those rights, if that's the thing that motivates us, then it's impossible to seek forgiveness. To seek forgiveness is to refuse to put your rights first. And it's to choose to love. This is why Johnny, a few weeks ago, talked about having those conversations, right? And you all know what I'm talking about, those conversations. You've wronged me. You've hurt me. You've done something which has damaged me. And rather than going away, gossiping, Um, holding it in rather than focusing on the way that you've damaged my rights we go and have that conversation not because we want to hurt not because we want to harm precisely the opposite simply because we want to love we want to be a community of love and if we go and we open up our hands we refuse to hold on to our rights the pain that that has been caused then we open the opportunity for healing and for forgiveness So how do we love like this? How do you love like this? Do you not want in on it? Imagine if we had a community like that, that someone comes in on a Sunday and their needs are looked out for, that people love them in a costly way. People go out of their way to love. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine what that would say to the city and to the world. Do we not want to love like that? So how do we do it? How do we do it? Well, the the hint, I think, the clue is again in the way that Jesus himself loves, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And uh, Tom Wright again says, really the language there is kind of saying something more like, who being in very nature God, because he was in very nature God, became man. It's as if he's saying it was because Jesus knew his identity, because he knew who he was, that he could love like that. And so the key to being able to love in the way that Paul is talking about, this costly, sacrificial, giving up your rights, giving up your needs and your wants sort of love. If you're able to love like that, the way you're able to love like that is to know that you are fully loved. Martin Luther King said, if you want to love others properly, you need to love yourselves well. If you love others properly, you need to love yourself well. And I think he's getting to what this passage is talking about. Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this eternal relationship of love, was able, out of that love, to humble himself. How do we have the power, the energy, to love others well? It is to know that we ourselves are loved. And so we're into New Year. 
We're starting this new year. And in a minute, we're going to start new year by going into communion together to celebrate this meal which Jesus has given us. But, um, you know, one of the things about new year is that we, start, we set these resolutions, don't we? These uh, things I want to work on. I've got a few resolutions of my own. But we set these resolutions, and sometimes the problem with a resolution is that it can be this harpagmon, this grasping. If only I could have X, if only I could have Y, if only I looked like this, if only I had this rhythm, this pattern, then everything would be okay. And it can be a bit of a grasp. And I wonder if what God is challenging us to do this year, this, as we start this new year, is to live lives of open hands, to receive from him. And so verse 12, as we end, verse 12, Paul says this. Therefore, my dear friends, if you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose it is God who is at work in you fear and trembling why fear and trembling because it's scary it's scary isn't it bin juice is scary costly love is scary giving up our time to love the one is scary giving up our money to love the one is scary giving up our rights so that we can seek forgiveness is scary It's a scary prospect, but it is God, Paul says, who is at work in us. And so how do we get to that position where we know we are loved and so that we can love? We live with open hands, i.e. we receive from him. It is God who works in us. And so this year, I wonder if rather than thinking, what am I going to do? What are my resolutions? What if we thought this year, what is God going to do in me? Rather than what am I going to achieve in my life? What if we thought and started this year thinking, how do I get myself in a position where the spirit can work in me and through me? And that's what we do when we come to communion. That's what we do when we gather here. That's what we do in our rhythms of prayer, our practices of prayer, is come before God and say, God, I need to be a person who knows that they are loved. People have said things to me, done things to me, which means that I have very, very difficult, find it very difficult to understand that I'm loved, very difficult to understand that I'm really accepted. But God, would you show me again that you love me? What if we did that every day? What if we asked the Spirit to come into us and started this slow journey of moving increasingly to this place where we feel loved and accepted. And out of that place, I believe, out of that place, we would find it possible then to love in a costly way, to love even as Christ loves. Amen?